Thank you for tuning in to the Identity and Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena. If you're a returning listener, you might notice the addition of another voice at the start and end of this conversation with the featured guests. My friend and colleague, Dr. Sahoy Lee, is going to offer some context to the ensuing conversation, followed by her professional insight about the matter from a psychological standpoint at the end of the exchange. Enjoy. What's going on, Dr. Lee? Hello, Stena. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I really appreciate your uh, being a resident expert on the Identity in Me podcast. <laughs> Let's um, see how many episodes I make through before you kick the kick the resident expert out of the... No, no, never that, never that. You're coming in on this episode to talk about cross-cultural communication and the challenges that people have with that. Let me ask you a question. Okay. What was the most awkward encounter you had with somebody or one of the most awkward encounters you've had with somebody at first, cross-culturally? Uh, I don't know the first one, but can I tell you the one that happens so often, like sure. regularly? Go ahead. The, the, the awkward cross-cultural conversation I have with folks quite frequently is when folks are trying to connect and one of the first thing that they want to compliment is my English. And they'll say, oh my gosh, your English is so good. You don't have an accent. And I hear them trying, right? They're trying to connect in some way, but it's just like, seriously, like yeah. we're going to go there. And then their next naive question might be like, you know, how did you, how did you get so good? Like, how did you learn your English? And I want to just say, and I often do school, like, what did you learn? You're like, how did you, how did you learn? Because I learned from school. And again, it's awkward because you, most of the time people are just trying and they're trying, trying to connect and then they just miss the mark. Right. And then the awkwardness comes from how much energy do I have in that moment to engage? And there are times, and depending on who it is, I might just write it off as like, you're an idiot, keep walking. I, I don't have time for this. And other times you might be a little bit more invested and say, well, you know, I'm wondering what you're asking is, you know, where was I born? And yes, I actually moved here from Taiwan at age 10 and learned blah, 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 blah. And you go more into it, right? But that awkwardness is trying to decide in that moment, how much of you do you start to invest yeah. in whatever this relationship is or isn't going to be? And the other question that comes to mind for me right now is, is this in general, your interactions with folks who are not Asian, when they encounter you, they tend to bring up your language capability? Always white folks. Yeah. <laughs> this type of question, yeah. um, at least in my personal experience, tends to come from white folks who are trying to connect and then miss the mark, unfortunately. Um, I think when I'm interacting with other people of color, there's less... 
I think people try to connect in different ways. You know, how did you grow up? And maybe we're just more, we, we know better questions to ask each other. Um, and so I find folks not miss the mark as much. I think what people get, when I'm talking to other folks of color, and you and I had those inter- interactions, I think people actually are surprised to hear some of the, you know, the music I like or the experiences I had growing up or just, I don't know. And then it gets them interested to learn, to want to learn more. And it's kind of fun to have those conversations. It breaks some of the stereotypes, I think, when people first approach me or look at me or, you know, look at my title or uh, my degree and they may have some assumptions about me. And then when they get talking to me, I think some of those stereotypes starts to fall away. Um, it makes it a little bit more of an interesting conversation, I think. So you're on guard and they're nervous. They're trying to make an impression. So both of you are in a funky spot mentally. Yeah. When when we first talked about having this conversation about cross-cultural conversations, the first thought that came to my mind is it's not that hard, you know, and I think folks get they get nervous, they get scared. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to talk to other people who are not like me. Yes, you do. You know, how did you and your partner meet when, when you first had a conversation? How were your first date conversations? You know, oh wow. What you have more faith in people than I do, really. You think it was seamless for folks to meet their the person they ultimately ended up marrying or being partnered with? I mean, some people really put their foot in their mouth. Well, yes, they do. And I think that because what gets in the way, Stena, is a lot of the stereotypes. I think it's a lot of internalized racism, a lot of race, you know, biases, all those things come in the way. But I, I, maybe I do have more faith in humankind. And maybe as a psychologist, you have to. Um, but I think at the very basic level, we have to remember that we all have some skill sets. I like to believe that we're not starting from scratch. When we meet a person that has a different skin color from us, all of our skill sets are out the door. I don't think so. I think your skill sets have to be honed in and sharpened and developed. And, you know, yes, it, and not all same skills apply for everyone, but to be so scared to approach somebody who's different from you because you're like, I don't know, I don't know how to do this. And you throw your hands up. I think it's a missed opportunity. You're not giving yourself enough credit that you might have some skills and you're not giving this relationship a chance to even begin to start. And now we pivot to my conversation with Kevin Pajaro Marinas and Sean Campbell. All right, so Identity and uh-huh. Me has shifted into a studio. We're now official, y'all. Um, I'm here with two guests, Sean Campbell and Kevin Pajaro Marinas, both of whom have been guests on the podcast. Today, we're going to talk about cross cultural communication. Kevin, how do you identify racially and generationally? Racially, I identify as black, and generationally, I am a millennial. And how old are you exactly? 29. All right. And the age range for millennials is 26 to 41, I just learned. Okay. What about you, Sean? How do you identify racially and generationally? Uh, Racially, I'm white. Uh, I'm 43 years old. So generationally, that puts me in Gen X. All right. And the age range for that is 42 to 57. Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about what you do for a living? Yeah, so I guess my day job um, is I'm the Assistant Director of Equity and Inclusion here at Phillips Exeter Academy. 
And um, aside from that, I do a lot of community work, providing educational opportunities and, and workshops around issues of social justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so this this kind of language and 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 topic, I'm I'm around all the time. So I'm I'm really invested in also making it accessible. Part of the work is recognizing that while I'm around people who have the same language and understanding as I do, it doesn't mean that the listeners who are who are tuning in now necessarily are on the the same wavelength, which is not to say that they don't want to be, but they might not know. And I think that in and of itself sometimes creates tensions that are unintended. Um, but my hope is that I can provide clarity where I can and uh, make it a successful entry point for anyone who also wants to be committed to this stuff. Yeah, trust me, I know that. Uh, so I came into this community where I feel as though the rules of engagement are very different than other places where I've been um, prior to this, I was at a community college in Worcester and our DEIJ language was very different. As a matter of fact, we weren't even saying DEIJ. And um, by that, I'm referring to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion and justice. Uh, Mr. Campbell here, actually, Sean, was not or is not originally from Exeter. He came to this community like Kevin and I did. Sean, where are you from? I'll say I claim Katy, Texas, which is if you don't know what that is, that's uh, was a small town at the time. Now is pretty firmly suburban Houston. All right. Tell me a little bit about Katy, Texas. Number one thing is high school football. We have, I think as of right now, the most expensive high school football stadium in the world, probably. Serious? $70 million. What? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's maybe, that's maybe the subject of a whole other conversation. Publicly funded? They are public schools. Wow. Yes. Okay. All right. Please so, continue. Yeah. The more, uh, Katie, uh, you know, you bedroom community, um, lots of really lots of different kinds of people. I think that's one thing that surprises folks about Houston is that there are lots of different kinds of people that live in Houston that have come to Houston, whether immigrants or from other parts of the country. What do you teach? I'm a computer science teacher. So you started talking a little bit about the demographics of Katy, Texas. Can you um, expand on that, please? You know, I, I would say when we moved there, the the area was primarily Anglo and Latino. And in more recent years, as time has gone on, a lot more um, first generation immigrant families from Southeast Asia, from other parts of Latin America, um, Venezuela being one of the primary locations. There's now like really a thriving Colombian and also Venezuelan community in Katy. So, you know, and I think, you know, I, I guess I, I use the term Latino originally, and that, that's, that's a term that obviously obscures a lot of different cultures in that. And so I guess what, one thing, I guess it's interesting to me coming up here is, you know, a, a whole other Spanish speaking would say Latino community of Dominicans and, you know, groups that don't really exist in any sort of significant numbers are, are Puerto Ricans as well in, in Katy. That's interesting. You hear Spanish and it, the Spanish sounds different, right? Yeah, Which is yeah. not something I guess that people think about as much. Okay. So you mentioned that you're my neighbor. You live on the first floor. You're about to move. Sell out. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's about to move. I'm getting a house. Yeah, he's moving on up. I'm not mad about it. To the deluxe apartments. Um, <laughs> actually, a deluxe house while I stay in the dorm. But I have a pretty sizable living space, so it's all good. But anyway, so Sean is uh, part of this conversation. And I'm sure he knows this, even though I didn't say it to him explicitly. But 
Um, over the years, I've gotten to know him as the cool white dude who does not say stupid shit. <laughs> <laughs> I try my best. Yeah, Sean has not um, transgressed at any point. Um, seems to be culturally fluent. I'm not even going to go as far as calling him an honorary black person. I know there are people yeah, who do that. Right. I don't do that. I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. Nah. Um, but um, he's beat red right now. He's just like, where are we going with this? But over the years, I've become accustomed to interactions with white people that are hella awkward initially. I, I just expect it. I brace myself for it. And I can usually tell when it's coming. But five years in, I could tell y'all honestly, I, I just haven't had that moment with Sean. Although we had a close one years ago and I didn't even know how to address it. And it was all me. I don't know if you remember this. We were talking in my study and you were wearing a shirt and I could only see half of it. And the last three letters were G-E-R. And I was like, is this dude serious rocking this shirt in my study? And then when you turned, it was the name of a band. It was like Trigger or something. But it was just the last three wow. letters were G-E-R. But so I was sitting. <laughs> it's like, oh, gosh, you know, my dorm head is wearing an inappropriate T-shirt. But it wasn't. It was just me kind of like bracing myself for something that didn't happen. But anyway, um, over the years, Sean and I have had great interactions, um, even with his family. And so uh, I actually recorded a conversation with him on the podcast um, one of my initial conversations on the podcast was with him where I asked him about this. And so I want to revisit that conversation and pull Kevin in as well. So I'll start with you. Um, how did you learn to communicate across culture? So, yeah, and one thing now I'm realizing that I left out of that conversation was I think it probably started at home because although we weren't a household that really, and this is familiar to a lot of white people as, um, you know, the subject of race was avoided um, or it certainly at least didn't come up frequently. Um, it wasn't something my parents intentionally brought to, you know, to bear in conversation. Um, but I will say that I did have parents who were open-minded, who encouraged open-mindedness in all of, uh, myself and my siblings. And so I think it started there. I think it started with, you know, not having, um, at least a household where those preconceived notions existed. So certainly growing up in a small town or even in suburban Texas, you're going to encounter, you know, some of that trademark bigotry yeah. um, and obviously not relegated to to those places. Um, but, you know, there was plenty of exposure. And, you know, as as a young man, as you know, most young men, I had my fair share of, of line stepping. You know, there's things I don't I'm not proud of now. Um, I'm not going to ask you, you to know. share those stories. Yeah, so. I wasn't yeah. going to anyway. So. <laughs> um, yeah. But I hope I hope that's something that serves to to say that, you know, that there's no hope, there's no redemption, there's no coming back, there's no recovery from a mistake. Um, because I, I hope that's not the lesson that people are learning right now. Um, Hold on, did you but, get punched in the face for ever line stepping? Uh, wow, you had to think about that. <laughs> no, no, I did not. No punches to the face, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, just to the belly. What were we talking about? Uh, just how you learn to communicate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so like I said, it started at home. Um, I would say it was maybe being in those situations where, um, you know, you're the only white person and not just once, but kind of over and over again. So for me, that was, um, as an undergraduate, when I was going to school, um, a friend of mine bought a DJ mixer and he's like, Hey, check this thing out. And so he kind of showed me how to use it a little bit. He didn't, he barely knew how to use it. Um, but we ended up DJing at a frat party and that kind of 
led to another party that we DJed at. And eventually we became kind of this crew. Um, and while the school was predominantly white, you know, so th- in those spaces we were working, you know, partying or helping, yeah. helping white people yeah. party. Yeah. Um, like eventually that became something that evolved into a radio show that evolved into us doing some recording, um, getting connected with local artists um, who were almost exclusively black and Latino. Um, and, you know, I found myself like pretty much consistently the only white person in the room. And so, you know, I think being aware of that was something I hadn't really experienced before. Yeah, yeah. So just that that awareness um, and what I found out actually, not until I came here and we read uh, uh, Whistling Vivaldi. Uh, oh yeah, stereotype threat. Yeah, 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 stereotype threat. And so like, I didn't have a name for it, but I, I you know, I re- that book really resonated with me because like, oh yeah, I was kind of watching myself doing what I, I wasn't just doing it, I had to watch myself as I was doing it and, and trying to take care and, and um, being aware of those kinds of things. Um, and so I just, I guess I, did, I hadn't had a name for it before for that sensation. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, yeah, it was really just spending time with people and learning that not everybody is the same way. Well, I don't know what you call it, cultural exchange, just yeah, like, yeah. just, you know, listening to music you listen to okay we're we're just now we're not working we're just at a party uh what's what are you cooking what are you eating you know just just learning what what people do so you were around it long before you got to exeter oh um, yeah yeah and so that's why when we interacted it was a facile thing to just hey okay my neighbor happens to be a black person as opposed to i gotta do something to kind of show him like i'm down and i appreciate him being a black person and just sitting in the parking lot blasting Blasting rap music. Hopefully he'll see that I'm cool with this. <laughs> now, what about you, Kevin? Uh, what kind of community did you grow up in? Was it a homogenous community, heterogeneous? And how did you learn to communicate cross-culturally? Hadley, I feel like you're using some big words there. Do you mind defining what heterogeneous or homogeneous might mean for the people tuning in? You, you say homogeneous, I say homogenous. You know, I, I think it actually might be said the way that you said it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, that's kind of what came to mind. Well, we I both it. know what we talk right, about. Right, okay, right, right. So Absolutely. homogenous is the same and heterogeneous is diverse. There's a lot of difference. Please continue, sir. So I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, I was born in Queens, New York, but I, I mean, I, I can't claim it. I think that's just where I was born. My All my childhood memories, the things that I remember about culture and what I learned about myself and other people, definitely Providence, Rhode Island. So at the time that I was growing up, uh, Providence, and I think it's very much still the same uh, with some changes now, but a very, very black and brown place, right? Like a lot of black folks who were born in the States and also black people from the the continent, the motherland, Africa, right? And different countries there. Um, and just like black folks everywhere. So I think those are one, that was one of the first things that I think um, led me without having the language to say it that like blackness was not a monolith in the way that a lot of people think about it. Like black folks are not just people born in America. Blackness is everywhere, right? And a lot of the things that we consider like something that is just like US based actually happens internationally, but just through a different language or a different spiritual practice or a different music or, you know, whatever the case may be. So uh, that that's something I'll talk about a little bit more later. But 
yeah, very, very diverse where I grew up, um, particularly in the pockets that I frequented from with my family. So I'm Colombian and Dominican. So in Providence, very, very heavy Caribbean uh, Spanish speaking community, a lot of Dominicans, Puerto Ricans. Um, there's there's even a, a little contingency of Colombian people, folks from Central America. So you you really have a lot happening in Providence. And so for such a small city, I would say that it's really rich in culture in a way that people don't give it credit for, especially if you're not from New England and you haven't been there. Yeah. I think a lot of people here in Rhode Island, they're like, what do you mean? That state that's the size of a thumb? Or do you mean Long Island, right? Uh, so it's kind of a joke that if you're from Rhode Island and you go somewhere else and you tell folks that you're from there, it's not uncommon for you to be one of the very few or the first person that they've ever met from Rhode Island, Providence specifically, yeah. or for people to mistake that you are you're saying when you say I'm from Providence, Rhode Island, they're like, oh, you're from Long Island, New York. And it's like, no. So, you know what I I mean? That's what happens when you don't have a professional sports team. You know I mean? (laughs) Look, you can roast all you want, but it's Providence all day. Okay. It becomes irrelevant, but continue. Anyway, anyway, because as y'all can hear, um, the hater raid that Hadley's drinking is so strong today. Today's Friday. Um, I'm Stena on the podcast. Oh, excuse me. Stena. Wow. We're going by the aliases here. (laughs) Call me KPM. Um, um, you know, but I was actually writing this down because I I was hearing Sean speak and I really appreciated him talking about music because it it brought me back to a lot of the things that really that were really formative for me in terms of like how I think about cultural exchange. So for me, growing up, music was such a big part of my life. My dad was in a band, uh, a Vallenato band, which is a genre of of Colombian music. Um, So he was a singer. And my mom is, you know, Dominican. So a lot of the family parties that we went to, whether it be family friends or um, even parties on the Colombian side, they played all kinds of music. So I listened to a lot of merengue, a lot of bachata, a lot of salsa, a lot of things that I didn't know that I would appreciate so much now that I'm an adult. Because a lot of those things I rely on to be able to have conversations with people about like who I am and what defines me. And so when I think about music and a lot of the music that like I grew up with in Providence and specifically through my family, I always think about how music communicates stories of trauma, of pain, of loss, and a lot of ways that adults in my life didn't know how to communicate, uh, like just regularly through words. But you could tell that you can tell like uh, I had uncles and aunts who might have been suffering through divorce. And while they might have not had the language to talk about the pain that they were experiencing, maybe they did talk about it intimately in certain spaces when a song came out about having lost somebody or just experiencing loss in general like the passion with with which they sung certain music i'm like yo what what you going through like and as a kid i remember feeling that uh but you know like the dynamic between kids and adults and the power differential stuff there like makes it kind of weird to ask but now that i'm older i'm like wow so much of the ways in my and my inability to not communicate my feelings comes from seeing adults mm-hmm. process their pain mm-hmm. through music. So for me, music has become such an important part of my life because I think it's beyond just listening to something and like it's dope. Um, I try to embrace the feeling that it gives me because I think it uh, it just brings out uh, different ways that I make sense of life. And I think the same is true for food um, and 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 just honestly Spanish speaking language, right? So like. My Spanish accent when I do speak Spanish is very much Dominican. Um, And a lot of the ways that people expect that I might speak Spanish is quote unquote proper. So I've had a lot of times where non-black Latinx people or white people, when they hear me speak Spanish, it's in contrast with what they learned in the classroom. Like my enunciation's on point or I'm not pronouncing an S. But the way that I've reframed in my mind now as a, you know, as a budding 29 millennial 
uh, 29-year-old millennial, the way that I think about it is when I think about Domi- like Black Dominicans who made up a particular vernacular to like uh, think about and talk through Spanish differently than what is learned in the classroom, I think it's a resistance to the way that Spanish was taught mm-hmm. to Dominican people who were actually robbed of a lot of other native languages that were inherent to the land yeah. prior to Christopher Columbus coming through and being like, we're going to eradicate everything that's here. You need to learn how to speak Spanish as, as the thing. Um, so for me, I'm like, wow, like Dominicans really took Spanish and was like, I'm going to flip it on his head and we're going to make slam, we're going to make music, dembo, and make greetings that don't even go with what people expect Spanish to be. Get okay, baby. Right. But it's a it, but it's a culturally understood thing for a lot of people. You go to New York and people who are not even Dominican, like, yeah, you know, I I, I was at the height, I was in I was in the heights and I'd be like, yo, que lo que, mi hermano, da, da, da. and it's like folks who don't know Spanish but know all the Dominican greetings. So let me ask you, yeah. are you offended by that sort of interaction initially up front? No relationship with the person or very uh nominal relationship um you've just gotten to know the person maybe second or third mm-hmm. time it's like get okay Kevin. yeah like, are you like mm, nah yeah nah slow for that like <laughs> I'll, I'll like i don't know you right like i my my thing is if i have a relationship with you then i think i might receive it different but if you find out i'm dominican and especially if you're not dominican and you might be like white or a non-black latinx person trying to like talk to me like that i'm looking at you like bro you, you could just say what's up Okay, so Sean has not earned the right to be like, get okay. No, no. I, I mean, okay. I, I like Sean, but I don't know Sean like that. <laughs> <laughs> and Sean is right next to me, right? So, like, I, I feel pretty open and comfortable saying that, but I, I vibe with Sean. But if Sean hit me tomorrow with, like, dimelo baby, que lo que, I'd be like, yeah, slow for you. Like, we, we can't do that. That's weird. Sean has not hit me with my G or anything to his I w- credit. I wouldn't do that because I don't know what it means. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, okay, that's good. That's good. And where I'm going with this is initially when folks interact cross-culturally with a culture that they're somewhat familiar with, or maybe they were down at home, uh, and by down, I mean like they were familiar with a person or a culture, they go immediately to the thing that's familiar and they try to connect that way. Um, Or it's a stereotype that they're going with. They've watched too many movies that offer a single perspective about the culture and like they go there. And so for me... Growing up, it was immediately, and this is not a jab by any means, it's just happening to come up, but like voodoo was the thing that would come up. And I remember specifically, cats would ask me, you got HBO? Um, and I'm like, what's what was that? Haitian body odor? Or like something like, oh, yo, oh you know, God. you got chicken bones in your pocket? That was their soft way of trying to that was the start I, that a was relationship. The icebreaker. That was yeah, the icebreaker. No, straight up. Like that's the generation, the community I grew up in, the way people tried to connect with you across culture was irreverent. Period. Like they um latched on to the stereotype from your culture and rode with that until they got to know you and then they got away from the stereotype. And so I'm kind of pivoting a little bit here to the generational element. And I guess I'll go back to you, Sean, where stereotypes a thing that people engaged around and i'm not asking you to like spit the stereotypes (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know as the only white person in the room yeah go ahead yeah no um yeah i mean you know we grew up you know like i said saying problematic stuff and and that might be how people lead off you know like what pick pick your stereotype du jour like not saying that i did that carry on yeah so i mean so absolutely i mean there was no I live in America. Like that's 
seems like something that's pretty prevalent. And I've you know seen it, not just heard about it. And Kevin, were you present for those types of interactions, folks communicating uh, with stereotypes initially? Yeah, I, I mean, was I around it? One hundred percent. And I think I would be. It would be a disservice to not acknowledge that I was also participating mm. in the things that other people might have said about me uh, to make a connection, right? Because I'm like it in my head. If someone's gonna roast me for a, a Dominican stereotype about. Uh, playing baseball with a with a green plantain, right, and hitting hitting bottle caps wow. in the neighborhood. Wow. Yeah, bro. Like, far? yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like wow. I had I had okay. cousins roast me saying those jokes like that on on the Colombian side, um, and, and folks being like, "Oh, you Colombian? Like, don't they be don't they be like drug lords out in Colombia? You know, like things like that, or like cocaine." And so, you know, sometimes I I would engage the stereotype and like say those things to other Dominicans or other Colombians because in my head I'm like, well. If someone's going to roast me for that, I might be able to do the same thing to someone who has also experienced the potential harm that can come from those stereotypes. But at least it's coming from a person who like it's familiar in terms of we share we share the same kind of cultural background, ethnicity wise, not always race. But I think on the the ethnicity uh, tip, I'm like, okay, so maybe we can vibe with this. But looking back, I'm just like, I think I was reinforcing for other people who were not in the know that this was an okay way to connect with people, um, even if you're not in the loop culturally, whether it be through race or ethnicity, right? Um, and so looking back, I'm like, damn, that, you know, it, part of it is you're in high school and like high, high school teen boys, yeah. are, we're just weird. Yeah. Um, but I think the other piece- I wasn't when I, weird, but go ahead. Okay, if, if whatever Stena says at this point, yeah, I'm sure he was normal, yeah. you know, like Straight many of up. us in high school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like- Looking back, I'm just like, yo, I wonder if I would have had a different a different way modeled for me of how to relate to people that still felt like dope to do. I, I wonder like what what avenues those could have opened up in terms of not just cultural exchange, but like meaningful friendships that weren't centered on like um ro- like primarily roasting other people, but that was like really low-key bullying or like slut shaming people or like talking about all these things we have to conquer right like a lot of those things i thought at that time were cultural exchanges by way of living in providence the the environment that we were in and like the music we were listening to but when i look back i'm like damn part of it is i didn't know any other culturally relevant dope way to relate to people that didn't involve those things right so Now that I'm, you know, I'm older now and I'm thinking a lot about like gender and masculinity and like how I grew up, I'm like, I, I, I'm thinking so much about how, uh, I think I said this earlier, but how my inability to, I think, really communicate my feelings about certain things and like be open with people, I think is because I've internalized that like the ways that people want to relate, especially other men, like similar to me, the way that they relate typically for me is like, you talk about sports you talk about what you did back in college, the good old days, and you're drinking, you're getting wasted, and then maybe something else. But like a lot of the hallmark things about masculinity, I don't really relate to now because yeah. I'm like either trying to distance myself or I feel weird about it. It yeah. just doesn't feel genuine. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I'm in a weird in between space. But you know, those those were things that happened. So you went through a journey. You got there. You right. didn't start there, and at some point, no. uh, discovered or like said to yourself, "This behavior is problematic." And um, I'm thinking again about this matter of uh, generation and how we are acculturated. Back in my day, it's just what we did. And so I've had to unlearn a lot of the things that came 
to us very naturally um because gen y doesn't communicate in that way at least from what i can see um out and about and actually gen z and yeah and so i wonder how that shift occurred but we're not here to talk about how the shift occurred it's just the fact that we uh communicate very differently now than we did previously sean you have a thought yeah i'm i was just about to make that same segue or ask a similar question and that or just note that I was kind of hopeful to hear something different from Kevin about, you know, how how young men communicated with each other, you know, a generation ahead of mine, if you will, you know. And so I wonder how much has changed. And I, I'm, I guess I'm hopeful that, you know, this next generation is feeling that they can talk about those things, that they don't have to fall back to insults as as a way to, you know, to break the ice, as a way to build camaraderie. What I'm hearing from everybody here, though, is that, um, you learn to communicate cross-culturally through trial and error. There were never really any um, explicit messages that you got other than when you messed up, somebody told you to do better or... You're going left, go right. Yeah. And, or probably made you feel the hurt of what you said. H how can we do better in education from this standpoint? Should there be curriculum around teaching young people to communicate effectively across culture and i'm speaking about that more broadly yeah i mean i think the short answer to that is absolutely yes build curriculum um but i also think like give young people uh accessible ways to make those relationships right because it's one thing to build a curriculum give a kid something to read and pretend that after they read the thing they'll internalize it and engage in the habits that are necessary i think for a lot of young people they need to learn by by doing so if the curriculum is something that could be tailored to tailor for people to have like to engage in more experiential learning absolutely but if we're going to pretend that it's all going to live in theory and that if we talk about it here at the radio station that it's magically going to bleed into the world then people will do better no like it needs to be made accessible to folks so the short answer is yes 100 percent All right, Dr. Lee, so you, um, by the way, do you want me to call you Dr. Lee or is Sahoy cool? Sahoy's fine. Now, you're the resident expert. I'm going to call you Dr. Lee. <laughs> but actually, you know, cross-cultural communication, I'm asking you what you would like and you're telling me what you want and I'm still sticking to the thing. I, I know, come on. That's bad, right? Yeah, come on. Listen. Yeah. It's like you asking me, do you want me to call you Hadley or Stena? And I say Stena and then you say Hadley. So yeah, rule number one, y'all, if folks ask you to, um, refer to them in a certain way, you probably should do that. So, so Hoy, you listened to the conversation between myself, Sean, and Kevin. What was the takeaway for you? If I reference back to something I said at the beginning uh, about skill sets, um, what really stood out for me and is a takeaway is that skills take time to develop and skills take time to become more sophisticated. Um, and I think when it comes to cross-cultural conversations, it is about that. It's about taking time, investing in those experiences, in cross-cultural experiences, in, in, in exchanges with folks who are different from you. It's through this journey, through, these, through time, through experience, that you get better at it. Um, both of them talked about their, uh, their journey, if you will, um, and how they've gotten better over time. And I think that's got to be the takeaway. Folks often get scared that they don't know how to do this. So they don't try because fundamentally as human beings, we hate to be wrong. <laughs> yep. We hate to be wrong. We hate yep. to be uncomfortable. We hate 
to admit that we're wrong. We just hate discomfort, right? And, and if I if I even think about it in a more basic animal level, like we go toward pleasure and we go away from pain. And so just on a very basic level, if the conversation makes you feel some type of way of discomfort, you might want to shy away from that. Mm. And what I want to tell folks is keep going. Discomfort for us actually might mean that you're on a journey. You're on to something. You're doing something differently. You are trying a new skill set or a different way to apply an old skill set that's getting a little bit more sharpened. Discomfort does not mean bad. Discomfort does not mean, you know, stop. Discomfort means like, oh, this is new. This is different. So you mentioned um, people being scared and discomfort, and I'm thinking specifically now about how the brain is impacted mm-hmm. in an in initial encounter with somebody, for lack of a better term. Like you got things going on neurologically when you are nervous. Can you talk a little bit about how just the, the psychology of initial interactions and when people are nervous, why they put their foot in their mouth <laughs> and sometimes um, don't show up as their best selves? Yeah. So let's get down to the basics, right? So as animals, we have very basic survival instincts and our brain is developed to notice when there's something off, something dangerous, something different. And because we want to survive and protect ourselves, we put our dukes up, we fight, we fight or we freeze. And that's just kind of basic. We all got it. We all do it. Now let's be more evolved, right? Because we're human and we're who we are now. And it knowing that and you approach a new new situation or difficult conversation notice when your anxiety goes up right notice when you start to go you just start to get up you know and that's just your body saying to you oh this is different or this is new I, I, I don't think I've done this before and as I said before keep going right take a moment take a deep breath Notice where you are, who you're with. And that's when folks are trying to pay attention to safety cues. All right, am I safe with this person? Am I safe in a place? Is this the right setting? Is this the right time? And our brain very quickly scans, you know, the room, scans the person and trying to figure out is it safe or not. And I think it's just important that we're, to know as human beings that our brains do that. Yep. And how can we help our brain do the right correction, <laughs> you know? Um, so that discomfort and fear and anxiety is actually okay and reframe it and recalibrate your response a little bit so that you're not only stuck with fight, flight, or freeze. I'm thinking about why folks are scared when they meet a new person, particularly across race. And as I'm thinking about fear and discomfort, I wonder if the fear comes up for people because they're nervous about how they're being received by the other person or a lot of the information that they've been receiving about a group of people before they interact with them. Um, Which is why I would imagine folks who are mostly immersed in diverse communities are less likely to have that awkward initial encounter because they work through all those stereotypes. But the person who's in the more homogenous setting never got a chance to work through that. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? 
Absolutely. I think that's why experiences matter so much. It is so important to step out outside of your homogenous bubble, whatever that means. It may be your family. It may be your, your neighborhood. It may be your school to step out of those bubbles and exchange connect with folks because that's the only way that you can expand your stereotypes or better yet go beyond stereotypes right stereotypes serves to an extent it serves with that survival instinct okay what do i know what do i some grouping that our brain likes to do okay but let's go beyond that let's be more evolved right let's go beyond stereotype and the only way we can break these schemas we have in our minds is through experiences and so traveling, for example, is a wonderful way to learn, to understand and to see how other people live and that your way is not the only way. Hold on. So when you say traveling, uh, what about if somebody decides to go to the Burger King that's 25 minutes down the road in the predominantly black community to see how black people interact? Is, is that the kind of travel? <laughs> no, no, I don't want you to be like in a fishbowl and you're just like observing people in their like, you know, don't do that. Listen, I bring that up because I had somebody say that to me, that they wanted their children to learn more about uh, people of color, namely black folks, and so they got in the car every Saturday and went to the Burger King and observed. I was like, wow. Yeah. I, I didn't even know how to respond to that. Well, right. So like, do you get mad at this person or do you give them some credit for trying <laughs> the wrong way? Yeah. 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 No, I don't mean go and visit all your local Burger Kings. I, <laughs> what I do mean is to really immerse yourself in, in, in other cultures and other communities and look at how others live, to recognize that yours isn't the only way and to really pay attention, to be humbled. I, I think it's okay to be humbled and to be wrong. As, as I mentioned before, I think human beings, we just don't like to be wrong. Who does, right? It's uncomfortable. It attacks your sense of yourself. It, it changes the sense of yourself, the, the self that you thought you knew or you thought you worked really hard to build. And suddenly this information comes in a check that you didn't know, right? You didn't have it all. And that's hard. Okay, so I'm curious about a few things now, and a couple of the things that I'm going to ask you right now, I did not ask in advance, so my bad. <laughs> All right, so I am wondering if some folks are not sophisticated enough to evolve, because I think you got to have a certain curiosity um, to be willing to learn about people, to check your own beliefs, and to grow. And the other part of that is, so... I think, or I wonder if there are people in general across age groups who are not sophisticated enough, as I just said. And then there's the other component of, is there a point in your life, like you, you get older, you're in your 50s, 60s, where you're unable to break from past beliefs? I don't see it that way. And again, my bias here is that I'm a psychologist. My whole entire career is built on this premise that folks can change, <laughs> mm, mm -hmm. right? So there's my bias and yep. I may be wrong, but I don't believe it's a lack of ability. Like it's too late for you. Like you're so, you know, you're so in your own space. It's too late for you to learn. I don't think it's lack of ability. I think it's lack of a need to, or a need to invest. Like mm. why? A person who's choosing not, to have some of the conversation you and I are having 
my sense is that they don't feel there's a need to. And that comes from a dark place. I, I think it comes from a, a ignorant place. I think it comes from a self-protective space. And I think it comes from a, a space of feeling like it's not relevant to them. You know, was it to you? In my line of work, particularly when I work with adults, even young people, people often approach a counseling relationship when something isn't working for them um, or there's a crisis, you know? So uh, examples might be like, I'm not able to keep my job or I'm not able to perform academic as a student or my relationships are failing. There's a cost. There's a cost to them continuing to behave and think and feel in the way that they do right now. And the costs are stacking up. And now they're saying, whoa, 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 maybe I need to do something about this because it's costing me now, Mm. right? It's costing my relationships. It's costing my health. It's costing my job. It's costing my performance, blah, blah, blah. Maybe I need to change. A lot of times folks don't change until there's a crisis. So apply that to what you and I are talking about. For some folks, I don't think it's lack of ability, but I think there's a lack of need. They do not feel like there's a crisis for them. There's no need to. This is other people's problem. This is the people of color problem. I'm good. I'm living my privileged, blah, blah, blah life. Like, what's it to me? And if they don't feel like there's a need to them, it's really hard to force them to change. So human beings change as a matter of crisis, not conscience, much like organizations. It forces you. Thanks, Dr. Lee. And that's the episode, y'all. Shout out to Sahoy for providing her anecdotes and professional insight about why cross-cultural communication seems to be so daunting for some. And thank you to my guests, Sean Campbell and Kevin Pajaro Marinez, for sharing their experiences and journey with me. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, Keep reflecting. Identity and me. Identity and me.